You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and the projects. And today we've got a great show lined up. We've got a wonderful guest who's decided to come back and grace us with his presence a second time. And <clears throat> we're going to be talking about his latest books. Now when I was at a, the Evangelical Theological Society meeting last November, my in-laws gave me an early Christmas present. We said, go spend a hundred bucks in the bookstore, get whatever you want, we'll pay for it. And that, that is an apologist's dream Christmas gift right there, and especially getting books before they could come out. And one of the books that I saw was Craig Evans's Jesus and Remains of His Day about archaeology in the New Testament, and I think that's the first one I picked up. I, I bought a lot of them at once, but that's the very first one I picked up and said, yes, I'm buying this. <clears throat> and when I started reading it, I had it read about Three or four days. Wonderful book. Could hardly put it down. And today, we've got Dr. Craig Evans right here. Now, let me tell you about him. He's earned his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies at Claremont Graduate University and received his Decretum Habilitation from Budapest. I hope I didn't cure that pronunciation. He is a John Bidsagno Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. He is author of hundreds of articles and reviews and has published more than 70 books, including Jesus and His Contemporaries, Ancient Texts and New Testament Studies, Mark and the World Biblical Commentary, Fabricating Jesus, How Modern Scholars Distort the Gospels, God Speaks, and Jesus and the Remains of His Days, which is what we're talking about today, Studies in Jesus and Archaeology. He also co-authored with N.T. Wright, Jesus for Final Days. Professor Evans has given lectures at Cambridge, Durham, Oxford, Yale, and other universities, colleges, seminaries, and museums such as the Fear Museum in Chicago and the Canadian Museum of Civilization in Ottawa. He also regularly lectures and gives talks at popular conferences and retreats on the Bible and archaeology in Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which he's talked about on this show before. Evans has appeared many times in television programs on History Channel, BBC, Dateline NBC, and others. Dr. Evans served as consultant on the National Geographic Society's Gospel of Judas Project and from the Bible television miniseries produced by Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. He also participates annually in archaeological digs in the Middle East and volunteer teaches at schools worldwide. Professor Evans and his wife Jenny live in Sugarland, Texas and have two grown daughters and a grandson. Dr. Evans, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you, Nick. Good to be with you. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, I'd be happy to do that. I uh, was at a, an elite uh, undergraduate college in California preparing for law school, and I, I had a real sense of God's call in another direction. And so instead of going to law school when I graduated with my BA, I instead went to seminary and Portland, Oregon, and after completing the Master of Divinity degree, I returned to California to go to the Claremont Graduate University, and there I actually started out where uh, my dissertation work was in Isaiah, although as it turned out as my career unfolded, I had the opportunity to teach New Testament, and so I, I decided, well, if I've written a dissertation on Isaiah, why not talk about how Jesus and his followers understood Isaiah? And so that caused me to, to go into historical Jesus research. And then in the 1980s, as, as some of your, your uh, audience will remember, that's when Robert Funk founded the Jesus Seminar in 1985. The Jesus Seminar became very well known for color-coding uh, the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, 
on the idea of, of what they think is authentic. And so if Jesus really said it, it's red. If it's close, it's pink. If it's doubtful, it's gray. And if, and if he did not really say it, then it's black. And, and of course, you'll remember that, and that uh, that went on through the 80s and 90s, and I was in the thick of that, uh, and I was very critical of a lot of their skepticism because it was based on a on what I thought was an egregious misunderstanding of Jesus's world, and uh, failure to understand the light the Dead Sea Scrolls shed on the world of Jesus, his teaching, how people would have heard him and understood him. And so the archaeology, the land of Israel itself, these things were not taken into account. So, so it, it was just a, providentially, I'm sure, but it's just events that occurred drew me into historical Jesus work in the late 80s and right up to the present. And, uh, and so that's, that's become the defining, I think, characteristic of my own career, and so I'm known as somebody who works on Jesus and the Gospels and related areas, such as archaeology, Dead Sea Scrolls, early Jewish rabbinic literature, uh, and related things. And so uh, this book that we're talking about, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, and then the, the uh, subtitle is Studies in Jesus and the Evidence of Material Culture. And that's how archaeologists refer to the artifacts that they recover or any other physical indications of human life, it's called material culture. Of course, culture is more than just material things, but material culture is what survives from antiquity because it's, it's in the earth, it's made of stone, it's made of metal, glass, or whatever. And so that, that's, that's how I got into this. And so I've been in Canada for 35 years. I taught for uh, more than 20 years in British Columbia, 13 years in Nova Scotia, out east. And in December, my wife and I moved to South Texas, where I, I'm now the dean of the School of Christian Thought of Houston Baptist University, obviously in Houston. So we've been here for now about seven months, and it's exciting because we've established the Houston Theological Seminary and the Master of Divinity program that goes with it, and all of that launches this fall. So that gets you caught up, Nick, and that's why I do what I do and why my uh, my own interest in scholarship and publishing became narrowed to Jesus and the Gospels. Well, let's dive into the book, then. And like I said, it is an excellent, excellent book. Now, um, if we were talking about archaeology as a whole, do you think archaeology has been a friend or a foe to the New Testament? Well, archaeology clearly has been a friend. Uh, what archaeology does two or three things. Archaeology, number one, just helps clarify the world uh, of the past. And, of course, that would then refer to the world of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, whether we're talking about Old Testament, the patriarchs, the history of Israel developing as a kingdom, uh, what happens to Israel when the Babylonians conquer the small kingdom, the exile, the restoration, and so on, uh, archaeology sheds light on the world of Jesus, the early church. And so mm -hmm. that's the first thing that biblical archaeology does. It just simply creates a context, helps us understand, and it can be very mundane things, how people lived, kind of food they ate, uh, their, their practices, the way they worked, uh, levels of literacy, uh, and you name it. It just it sheds light in unexpected ways when you find things. Uh, the second thing that archaeology will do is sometimes it does confirm things the Bible talks about. Mm -hmm. There used to be radical skepticism a couple hundred years ago. We look back on it now, it's embarrassing, but there were critics, and I put critics in quotation marks, there were critics who doubted that there were Hittites, or there was this group, or that group that's mentioned uh, in the Old Testament, for example. And, well, sure enough, ongoing archaeology has demonstrated that, of course, these groups existed and they had their kingdoms and they battled with one another and Israel often was caught in the middle. And so what was uh, routinely talked about as nothing more than myth or legend without foundation, that's all been exploded thanks to uh, archaeological discoveries. And currently, just to get us into our century and more recent times, 
there were skeptics who doubted that there ever was a uh, King David and Solomon. And maybe this is all the stuff of myth and legend uh, from the past. And so, uh, you know, just 25 years ago, we find a stone uh, up north in Israel, and it has House of David inscribed right on the stone. And it's not Israelite propaganda. The stone is in Aramaic, written by Syria. And so they acknowledge the existence of David and his dynasty. Mm-hmm. And they're enemies with, with Israel. So it's this kind of evidence. It just keeps coming to light and embarrasses the people who say, well, the biblical narrative is just a fairy tale. It's talking about, it's kind of like King Arthur legends. These things really didn't happen. And archaeology shows that, well, actually, they did happen. These people did exist. They're real places, real people, real events. So archaeology is not only a, helps us understand the context of the biblical world, but in some instances, it very pointedly shows that the biblical narrative is talking about something that yeah. a real person, something that really happened. And so this kind of skepticism that, uh, just once, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. It's almost like, well, if the Bible says this happened, we know it didn't. Kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, a left-wing fundamentalism, I guess, mm-hmm. is very, very open to embarrassment by archaeological discovery. And the same thing is true. That's why I, I write, uh, have written this book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day. The same thing applies to the New Testament Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus. There are skeptics who say, oh, well, that didn't happen, or, uh, you know, that's not based on eyewitness testimony. And then, lo and behold, uh, the village in question is uncovered, or something's found that shows that the gospel description uh, of that custom or that event or whatever is accurate. And so it just keeps happening. And so uh, archaeology, to answer your question, yes, it's been a friend. Uh, it's a friend of people who take the Bible seriously. Uh, it's a friend of those who believe the Gospels really do tell the truth and tell us about the real Jesus of history, uh, and, and that's what it's done. Now, let me just add a caution, though, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a wrong approach that some people will take, and it's the fundamentalism on the right, and that is the idea that the Bible, archaeology is out to prove the truth of the Bible all the time. And I think that's where it gets, uh, that, that's an abuse. And so mm-hmm. you end up with attempts to find Noah's Ark in eastern Turkey up on Mount Ararat or something like that. Uh, that's the wrong approach. Mm-hmm. You, you don't go into archaeology trying to prove something you, you go into archaeology with an open mind. You go into archaeology asking yourself, uh, what's, what's here? What are we going to find? How will it help us understand this or that? You don't go in with some kind of a uh, set um, uh, opinion or theory or a pet theory or something like that, and you're going to prove it no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the wrong thing. That's, the, that's just like uh, the radical left that says, we're going to show that this did not happen uh, or never existed, no matter what. Those are closed-minded, dogmatic people. They don't want to be guided by the evidence. So what you do is you say, look, we're going to dig, we're going to find things, and we're just going to study it, and we're going to see where it takes us. But the interesting thing is, archaeology is done not just by Christians, uh, not just by uh, believing uh, Jews, but by agnostics, uh, in some cases atheists, people with no religious commitment at all, and they just enjoy it. It's, it is fun. It's like, it's like a digging for treasure. Mm-hmm. And so dig down, find things, get, get students to volunteer, retirees to volunteer. It's a lot of fun. I've been on digs. Uh, I think they're wonderful people. I'm so grateful. They do all this donated labor to find things, and then it gets washed up and studied, you know, the pottery, the coins, whatever it is that's found. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and we learn a lot. It just so happens that whoever does the archaeology, Christian, non-Christian, religious person, non-religious person, it just time and time again it shows that the biblical narratives really are talking about real things in the past. And that is why, Nick, we have a discipline called biblical archaeology. Mm-hmm. Because if the biblical narrative and the archaeological results did not agree, if they just simply did not correlate, there wouldn't be a field called biblical archaeology. Mm-hmm. Because there, mm-hmm. wouldn't, there wouldn't be any archaeological evidence that shows that the biblical narrative is right. Mm-hmm. But because the narrative, uh, these ancient Hebrew narratives in the Old Testament and these very old Greek narratives in the Gospels, because they do correspond, that's why the discipline called biblical archaeology exists. And that's why there are uh, dozens of archaeological digs every single year in Israel or Jordan, or, or uh, Turkey, or uh, Italy, or Greece, and uh, less so lately because of the unrest, but also in uh, Egypt. And, and that's why it happens. So yes, I, I know it's a long answer to your question, but yes, archaeology has been a friend uh, to the Bible. I'm not aware of a single archaeological discovery that contradicts something the Bible talks about. Mm -hmm. There have been archaeological discoveries that contradict bad theories that we moderns hold or questionable traditions that have been around a long time. And that's the thing I like about archaeology. It sets the record straight. Mm -hmm. Uh, It helps us in our biblical interpretation. It shows out, you know, oops, wait a minute, you had that wrong. Uh, You need to... um, uh, interpret it differently. And so archaeology is a friend in a lot of ways. It provides a context, it does provide confirmation, but it also provides correction. And so archaeology is just a great thing. It goes hand in hand with biblical interpretation. Now, there are also some people I think who can expect too much from archaeology. For instance, they say, where we need some archaeological evidence of Jesus, for instance, and we get archaeological evidence of Caesar and other people. I mean, why don't we have some direct archaeological evidence here? And if we play that game, there's very little archaeological evidence for most people that ever lived, isn't there? Well, there's not as much archaeological evidence for some very famous people as you might think. Mm-hmm. You know, how much direct archaeological evidence do we have for Alexander the Great when you stop and think about it? Mm-hmm. There, there's very, very little uh, archaeological evidence that, that is directly relates to when Alexander lived. Mm-hmm. Now, what you do is you start getting plenty of evidence after his time. He, of course, didn't reign very long. He died young. He was still in his 30s. But... Um, and the same thing applies to Jesus. There isn't a whole lot of archaeological evidence that directly relates to Jesus in his lifetime. And so to complain that there isn't enough evidence relating to Jesus is a failure to understand the nature of ancient archaeological evidence. How much direct evidence do we have, for example, for Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus? But what we do have, we do have a handful of narratives written within a generation or so relating to some of the Roman emperors, and we have a handful for uh, narratives called Gospels written within a generation or so of Jesus of Nazareth. And so when you start making comparisons, it really, it is interesting to see that the uh, literary evidence, as well as the archaeological evidence relating to Jesus, is about the same. It corresponds with the literary and archaeological evidence for some of the Roman emperors. And that's mm-hmm. really an amazing thing. And so when I hear somebody say, you know, like the existence of Jesus or something is doubtful because we would expect there to be, if he really lived, we would expect a greater amount of archaeology. That's not a very well-informed view. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, doesn't ex- 
express a good understanding of how history itself unfolds, how it's recorded in the past, or how the archaeological uh, record relates to it. I mean, how, do you, how often do you find, you know, where an emperor writes his own name on stone and then we find that? I mean, uh, how many emperors write their own biography? A couple of them have, but most don't. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have a biography from Emperor Vespasian or Emperor Nero. And we mm-hmm. don't have a biography written by Jesus either. But we do have people within a generation talking about them. And so Jesus compares rather well to other public figures uh, in the past. Uh, very well, in fact. Well, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Water Rise podcast. We're only going an hour today due to time constraints on Dr. Evans's part. But if you're listening next week, you're not going to hear anything, because the 24th is my sixth wedding anniversary to Audi, and we're going to be observing things on the 23rd since the 24th of Sunday. And sorry, people, but she's a lot cuter than you all are, and she's a much more important to me. So I'm going to be taking a break that day. But if you're there the next week, We're going to have Robert Stein coming on. He's going to be talking about the book of Mark, answering questions on Mark. So if you're interested in the gospel of Mark, come back in two weeks and you'll get to hear that. But now let's get back to Dr. Evans. Well, let's talk about some archaeological findings in your book. And we can only cover a few. And I really encourage everyone, please go out and get this book. Um, How about, first off, there are some people who say there weren't any synagogues at the time of Jesus. So when we read about synagogues showing up in the Gospels or in the Book of Acts, it's obviously wrong because they just weren't there. Well, thanks, Nick, for raising that question. That is a very good case in point mm-hmm. uh, that that illustrates a couple of the uh, uh, factors of archaeology that I talked mm-hmm. about a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know it's extraordinary to think of this, but about 25 years ago, a rather prominent scholar at New Testament studies wrote a few essays suggesting that the the evidence was such we should conclude that there were no synagogue buildings, no recognized buildings dedicated as synagogues in the time of Jesus, that buildings like that were not constructed until after the year 70, that is after uh, the time when the Jewish temple in, Jer- in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so the synagogues were then built as compensation. The Jewish people now had a place to worship. Uh, the synagogues had symbolism that recalled the temple, you know, like the menorah, the candlestick with seven, seven branches. And so that was the theory. And so this professor had to argue that the uh, at the time, three, maybe four uh, ruins that had been found and identified as synagogues. He had to argue that the archaeologists were wrong, uh, that these were not synagogue buildings but were something else. Uh, he had to argue that the inscription found in the ruins of Jerusalem uh, from the destruction in 70, the inscription that mentions uh, expanding, building and expanding the synagogue and thanking uh, a family, uh, Theodotus is the family's name, thanking them for providing the money for this building. Uh, he had to argue that that inscription was not pre-70, but rather from the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th century A.D. He had to argue that the New Testament Gospels that referred to meeting in synagogues where Jesus preached, he had to argue that was anachronistic because the Gospels were all written in the 80s or something and reflected a different time. He had to argue that Josephus, the Jewish historian, who was not a Christian, of course, not a follower of Jesus, he had to argue that he was anachronistic, too, in referring to synagogue buildings. And I'll tell you, Nick, it was silly, and it was an example of this uh, left-wing fundamentalism, this hypercritical fundamentalism, that simply is impervious to evidence. Mm-hmm. This is a great example of somebody who has a theory, and they're going to stay with the theory no matter what the evidence happens to be. And so there were Jewish scholars, not just Christian scholars, 
uh, and not just conservative Christian scholars, but also liberal Christian scholars who strongly disagreed uh, with the theory that this uh, this professor 25 years ago was putting out. Well, what has happened, we now know of 10 synagogues, synagogue buildings, dedicated buildings for worship on, on Shabbat, Saturday, as well as Tuesdays and Thursdays, Ten buildings that existed, at least that number, prior to the year 70. And I suspect we'll continue to find more as archaeological work in Israel continues. Uh, two or three of these synagogues were actually destroyed by the Romans when they invaded Galilee in the years 66 and 67 after the Jewish revolt got underway. Josephus even tells us about one of the cities, Gamla, up in the Golan Heights, and you can go there and you can see the destroyed city, destroyed by the Romans, and one of the buildings destroyed is a synagogue. And it's as obvious as can be that it's a synagogue with that classic design of bench seating on the walls, on, you know, on the outside walls looking in, and, uh, and the pillars inside the building. Those are distinctive markers of the synagogue. In fact, there is a mikvah, that is a ritual immersion pool adjacent the synagogue. So to date, archaeologists have identified 10. One or two of them are disputed. Uh, the synagogue at uh, Capernaum, because it's a modern synagogue standing on ancient foundations. So the question is, is the foundation part of the first century synagogue or not? So that is disputed. But there's no dispute about at least seven of these synagogues identified as existing in the time of Jesus, actually earlier in most cases. So there's an example of that. And so, no, Josephus is not anachronistic. He knows what he's talking about. Yes, the Gospels are right, too. They're not anachronistic. They're talking about identified, identifiable buildings called synagogues. These things existed. Now, why is this important? Well, the Gospels tell us this is where Jesus routinely preached. Mm -hmm. And so if you say the synagogues didn't exist, then the Gospels get something very, very wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you, you have to ask, well, do they get anything right? If they have Jesus routinely preaching in buildings that weren't built until one generation after Jesus died on a Roman cross... Do the gospel writers get anything right? And see, that's why this is a very important question. And so it's not just a pedantic, well, who really cares? It's just a minor detail. It is very important. And so archaeology and most of these discoveries had nothing to do with Christian archaeologists, but rather Jewish archaeologists. Archaeology has shown that that uh, liberal Christian scholar was completely wrong and had mishandled literary sources and had mis mishandled egregiously the archaeological sources as well. And so uh, I think this is a great example, and that's why it's a very important one, and this is why I devoted a chapter in my book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, to this very, very important topic. Mm -hmm. Now, you described him as a left scholar, so let's go on to another scholar on the left that you dealt with, and uh, we had Greg Manette on our show, who's doing his Ph.D. on this topic, and he spoke on it before. And that's to respond to your friend Bart Ehrman, who has come out recently and said Jesus was never even buried, where aside from maybe John Dominic Crossan's idea of a, a common grave, where his body could be eaten by dogs. You know, is, is this the newest archaeological trend to say in the, where our ship is going in the New Testament to say that Jesus was never buried? Well, that's another real good uh, question, Nick. Thanks for raising it. Uh, mm -hmm. I do not know a single archaeologist who agrees with Professor Crossan and now more recently uh, Bart Ehrman. Uh, not one agrees with the idea that the body of Jesus was not properly buried, but rather left hanging on the cross for days until the body simply decomposed, or perhaps taken down from the cross and simply thrown into a ditch where uh, it would have been exposed to 
animals and perhaps eaten by dogs, you know, and that made headlines when this was suggested 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, you know who the first critics of this, when Crossan proposed it uh, in uh, 20 years ago, the first critics were Jewish scholars. That was interesting mm-hmm. because what they pointed out was, uh, and, and they, they weren't necessarily sympathetic to Jesus or sympathetic uh, to Christianity, but what the scholars pointed out was uh, the Jewish people took very, very seriously um, the purity of the land, and that's the issue. And I think this is what escapes Crossan and is not well understood by uh, Professor Ehrman either. It has nothing to do with pity for the person who's died on the cross or who's been executed in some other manner, hanged, beheaded, or whatever. Uh, it has nothing to do with pity for that person. Nobody's trying to say, "Oh, let's be sympathetic and show some, you know, show some grief and sensitivity for this person that's been put to death." Um, that has nothing to do with it. It has to do with the purity of the land. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, uh, verses 22 to 23 spells that out. It basically says if you put somebody to death, he could be guilty of treason or something like that. And, of course, Jesus was charged with treason, uh, claiming to be the king of the Jewish people. Uh, and if he's, you then hang him from a tree. And a cross, in Jewish parlance, a, a cross was often called a tree. And you hang him, you must take his body down before the sun goes down. Because to leave the body hanging on the tree overnight brings a curse on the land. And so that was taken very seriously. Now, when I debated this with Bart Ehrman, both in writing and in person, he would say, well, are we to believe that the Roman uh, governor, like Pontius Pilate, would actually knew this, that he read Deuteronomy or, or took Jewish scriptures seriously? And, of course, he was trying to be uh, uh, humorous about that and, well, no, uh, sarcastic. Well, no, of course not. Pilate didn't, have, didn't do Bible studies. Uh, he didn't care what the Jewish scriptures said. He, he didn't necessarily know anything about what the Jewish scriptures said. But what he did know was Jewish culture. He did know that if you're going to maintain peace, you can't be uh, uh, seriously offensive. And so, so for him to execute Jesus and two other Jewish men and hang their bodies up on crosses for them to die just the day before Passover, right outside the walls of Jerusalem, a city that's population triples or quadruples during the Passover season. So it's now teeming with tens of thousands of visitors, many of them from Galilee, to crucify, to execute. The important point, Nick, that I'm making here is that the ruling priests understand all this, and the ruling priests are the ones who consult with the Roman governor, whether it's Pontius Pilate or the governors before him or the governors after him. That's how Rome ruled. And so they ruled provinces, uh, territories like Israel through local leadership. And so the ruling priest knows perfectly well that on a Passover holiday like this with thousands of visitors, not just from Galilee but from overseas, as well as all the locals who live in Jerusalem or elsewhere nearby in Judea, you you know, you have to be sensitive to these strongly held Jewish beliefs. And the purity of the land is what's at stake. So Pilate doesn't have to know what Deuteronomy teaches. That's irrelevant. He just listens to what the ruling priests tell him. Pilate doesn't want a riot. Yes, he wants to promote the Roman imperial cult, but he doesn't want to start a rebellion, and certainly the ruling priests don't want the Jewish people to rebel, because if they can't control the people, if they cannot maintain peace, Rome will remove them. That's actually stated very correctly in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. So the question now is, okay, if if Pilate uh, would likely respect Jewish sensitivities on that. I mean, after all, Pilate's, Pilate's interested in putting to death troublemakers. He doesn't care if they get buried or not afterwards. Let the Jewish people see to that. And that's what Jewish law actually says. 
that uh, if the Jewish Sanhedrin condemns somebody to death, then it's up to the Sanhedrin to see that they're buried, not in honor, but properly. And that's an important thing. And that's why graves, we're told, were set aside for the burial of people who were executed because they were criminals. And, uh, and that's, that's the key thing here. So now let's go and ask the question, do we actually have uh, literary and archaeological evidence that people who were crucified were buried? And the answer is we do. Josephus flat outright says in Jewish Wars, Book 4, that crucified people were buried. So there's no question of that. And, he, and his whole point was to talk about how horrible it was that when the rebels who captured the city of Jerusalem in 66 and launched the war of liberation from Rome, and that resulted in the destruction of the temple in 70, they actually murdered some of the ruling priests and cast their bodies out of the city unburied. They were showing extreme disrespect to them, and Josephus was utterly scandalized that they do that. And that's when he says why we even bury the worst malefactors, including those who were crucified. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it very clear. But what about the archaeological evidence? We actually have the heel of a man with an iron spike in it. His name's Yehohanan because his name is written right on the box, the bone box. His skeleton is found in it. His lower leg bones have been broken, which is what they do to hasten your death if you're hanging on a cross so that you will be buried before sundown. And the iron spike is still in his right heel. We've also found a second bone box, another skeleton. And the publication, accurate publication of the find was delayed for various reasons. The archaeologist himself, who was working on it, died under strange circumstances. But just three years ago, it was finally published and it's, it's the skeleton of the last Hasmonean prince, Antigonus, who fought and lost against Herod the Great. And he was executed by crucifixion and beheading. And so his beheaded skeleton, his crucified bones were found in a box. And you know something, Nick, the nail is still in one of his hands. Ouch. Uh, in, embedded in the bones. So I, and I've seen these skeletons. I, I know you can see Yehohanan's heel, a uh, plastic replica in the Israel Museum. I've actually seen the real thing. Uh, it's in Jerusalem. I can't say exactly where. I don't want to embarrass the, uh, the professor, the scientist who has these bones. Uh, so I'm keeping that confidential. That's because ultra-Orthodox Jews are extremely touchy about the burial of human remains. But in any case, I've seen this heel uh, and the spike still in it. I have seen the, the hand bones with the spike still in them. Uh, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, the beheaded person still, you know, his bones, and he too was properly buried. So we have uh, at least three, maybe four people we know who were executed, two of them by uh, crucifixion properly buried. So what's the point then? If you're executed according to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin who has condemned you to death must bury you, not in honor, but properly. And so that's what Joseph of Arimathea volunteered to do. He was a member of the, of the Sanhedrin, and so he took that sacred duty on himself out of, of concern for the purity of the land, but I think in his case, sympathy for Jesus. He regretted that a fellow Jew had been put to death. So he then allowed Jesus to be buried in a tomb that was neutral. It had never been used before. It's not a tomb of honor. It's not a tomb of dishonor. It's neutral. It's brand new. And so Jesus' body was placed in it. So the, the, the gospel story makes sense. And by the way, Jody Magnus, who is a... a, a Archaeologist. She's a Jewish archaeologist on the same faculty as Bart Ehrman. Hired by him, in that fact. Is, that's right. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's on that faculty. She's an archaeologist. I have visited her dig site. She, she wrote a few years ago an article where she said the Gospels tell it right. They are in agreement with history, our historical sources, and archaeology. 
and she explicitly rebuts Crossan's view that Jesus' body wouldn't have been buried. And she just concludes that would not have happened. His body would have been buried. It never would have been left unburied. Now, she's not a Christian. She's a Jewish archaeologist. I agree with her. I think she's right on the money. So this is yet another example where you get a, a what I would call a fundamentalist left view that uh, basically wants to say whatever the Gospels say should be viewed with suspicion. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think that's open-minded. That's not well-informed by our sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If anyone's wanting some more on this, uh, there's another podcast I've done in the past. I just mentioned it, and I'm pretty sure you'd recommend this guy as well. Greg Manette did a whole interview with us on the burial of Jesus. So anyone who's interested in that, look for Greg Manette's interview that I did. But now I'd like to mind everyone of what we're doing here. It's all funded by listeners like you. And we could really use the funding. If you want to help us out, go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. And you can find a link there to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on it and you go to Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you've gone to the ministry of my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation to them. And you say... Hey, I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. You get in touch with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and let them know that. We'll get the donation. It will be tax deductible. If you can become a monthly donor, that's even better. You're the bread and butter of what we do. We really need you. And you can go to Amazon. Look up my name. I got some books that are written or co-written by me. If it's apologetics and it's got my name there, yep, that's me. And then also... You can buy jewelry. Go to the, <clears throat> the jewelry store, the premier jewelry store on our website. Use the code word LOVE. Any purchase you make, 25% goes to Deeper Waters. And if you can't do any of this, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I really love seeing them. Now, Dr. Evans, do you have a cause that you'd like to see people donate to? Well, uh, yes, uh you know, I'm at Houston Baptist University, mm-hmm. and uh, donations that are marked for student scholarships mm-hmm. would be really appreciated because they're, uh, you know, we've launched um, the new Master of Divinity program with Houston Theological Seminary. That's a, an initiative, that's an institution established by. Uh, Houston Baptist University, and so, you know, I, I always have a heart for students who pursue the Master of Divinity degree to become trained as pastors, mm-hmm. because pastors don't get paid a lot of money. Right. And so what this means, uh, scholarship means less debt, less debt, education debt from tuition, and that's a good thing. And so people who want to uh, donate I would say just, you know, a check payable uh, to Houston Baptist University and then with a note saying this is for uh, student scholarships, mm-hmm. that would really be appreciated. Yeah, HBU is getting some of the very best professors out there. And those of you who listen to the show, you know my father-in-law, Mike Sacona, is a professor there. William and Craig, I think, teaches there. Holly Ordway is going to be on later this year again, she's a professor there. Jerry Wallace is there. You've got an impressive staff there. Well, you know what? Uh, at the risk of sounding immodest, I have to agree with you, Nick. <laughs> we, uh, Houston Baptist University has an outstanding uh, theology and biblical studies faculty, and it's simply an incredible apologetics mm-hmm. faculty. You've mentioned uh, many names. I could add Nancy uh, Piercy to that list. She's mm-hmm. a brilliant writer. Uh, also, Mary Jo Sharp. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the something about it. I hope your reader, your hearers, appreciate because uh, we're egalitarian. We believe in, in in excellent education for women, and as well as men, we see women as uh, playing a very important role in. Uh, apologetics, defending the Christian faith, explaining the Christian faith, what it really is, and, uh, and the benefit it has for individuals and for society. 
So, yeah, we've, we just have a rock-solid faculty. And as you just said, your uh, father-in-law, Mike Lycona, whose book on uh, the resurrection of Jesus is probably the best book available in any language. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's one of, our, one of my colleagues. I, I've, known, I've known your father-in-law for years. It's great working with him, too. So, yeah, we, we just have a tremendous mm-hmm. uh, faculty at Houston Baptist University. Now, I'd like to ask you about one more area in Bidford archaeology, and there are so many more we could cover, but this one I thought would be one that would be one my listeners would attach to a lot. Now, we've talked about some scholars on this show on the left. Let's talk about someone on the left who's not a scholar, but who a lot of people seem to think is, and that's Rene Salm with his idea of the myth of Nazareth, that Nazareth never existed. I mean, is, is this a tenable position in biblical archaeology? No, it's not tenable at all. Uh, no real archaeologist would have any doubts about the existence of Nazareth. Um, the, the, this argument, without going into all of his arguments mm-hmm. of skepticism, but one of them is uh, Nazareth is in doubt because Josephus does not refer to it, and Josephus is a first-century person, and Jesus came from Nazareth, so why isn't Nazareth mentioned? So if Jesus is a real person and Nazareth is a real village where Jesus grew up, then how come Nazareth is not mentioned? The other uh, argument is, if Nazareth is a real place, how come it doesn't show up in any other literature? Why isn't it referenced by Philo, or or perhaps uh, some of the books of the Old Testament, or other literature? Well, the interesting thing is, uh, Simon Gathercole, who is a professor of New Testament at Cambridge, uh, has done a studies in the. He's actually involved in the study right now, and I've heard him present some of his results. Uh, he's compared uh, Josephus in his writings um, with the New Testament Gospels, and the Gospels refer to a number of of cities and villages. And Josephus refers to a number of cities and villages. And so then he asked the question, uh, do we have confirmation of other literature or perhaps archaeology, inscriptions or whatever, for the existence of these villages and cities? And here's the really interesting thing. He finds that 79% of the villages and cities mentioned by Josephus are confirmed in sources outside of Josephus, whether it's archaeology or other historical sources or whatever. And 81% of the villages and cities mentioned in the New Testament Gospels are confirmed uh, outside of the New Testament. And that's very interesting. So in other words, uh, the Gospels uh, compare very favorably to Josephus. Uh, who is uh, a first-century eyewitness talking about things, a person who obviously has traveled uh, throughout Israel, south and north, and presumably knows what he's talking about. Now, what about Nazareth itself? Well, I don't even know why anybody wants to dispute Nazareth. It's true, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, and that's because it did not exist that far back. It probably was established about 100 B.C. during the rule of the Hasmoneans as part of the effort to re-Judaize Galilee in the north. And so that means lots of people from Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and other Judean villages migrated north and, by the way, named some of their villages in Galilee after their villages in Judea. Maybe you don't know that, but there's a Bethlehem, for example, in Galilee. Hmm. And so... Um, what I surmise is because these, some of the people from Bethlehem who went up to Galilee uh, were actually descendants of King David, and David is called the branch, uh, Netzer, in Isaiah 11. They actually named Nazareth after the branch. In other words, it's, it's a branch town, Netzerah. And so that's done deliberately to allude to uh, Isaiah 11. And by the way, that's Matthew the evangelist knows that. That's why he says Jesus grew up in Nazareth to fulfill the Isaiah 11 prophecy that he will be called a branch, a Nazarene. Mm-hmm. 
But do we have archaeological evidence for Nazareth? Certainly. Not only do we have evidence in the village of Nazareth itself, that it's a village that existed at the turn of the era, that is, at, in the first century B.C., in the beginning of the first century A.D., we actually have the name of the village inscribed on stone. Mm. From, from the fourth century, it's a Jewish inscription talking about where the various priestly courses uh, exist, where they're to be established, and one of the priestly courses in the aftermath, of course, of the Jewish wars against Rome, one of the Jewish uh, priestly courses is linked to Nazareth, and there is Nazareth written in Hebrew in stone. So how in the world anybody could say there isn't any evidence for the existence of, of the village called Nazareth is absolutely silly. Mm-hmm. We have it inscribed in stone. We have it mentioned in all four Gospels written in the first century. And the idea that there was no village uh, and people just made it up is absolutely silly. Why would Jewish people who are not Christians a couple hundred years later make it up? What are they trying to do? Help prove the Gospels are accurate? Well, of course not. They refer to Nazareth because it's a real place. It's been a real place since its founding. It's still there today. And as I said a minute ago, archaeologists have found, I mean, it's a living city. There are 60,000 people who live there. So you can't just dig under the street or under somebody's house whenever you want to. Uh, archaeological opportunities are very limited, but uh, uh, they have, of course, found uh, the remains of homes, uh, well, uh, one well, uh, uh, um, great presses, terrace farming, and so on that date back to the first century BC and the beginning of the first century AD. So again, archaeological evidence embarrasses uh, this kind of left, radical left-wing skepticism. And I think a lot of this also relies on <clears throat> arguments. From silence, and if you're coming to archaeology and other fields about arguments from silence are notoriously weak, aren't they? Yes, of course. Arguments from silence need to be understood uh, for for what they are. Um, It just, and you know, when we're talking about ancient history, uh, Nick, you go back two thousand years and further back. There's a lot of silence. Mm -hmm. There are just many, many, many gaps in our knowledge, and so. As a historian, for me, all evidence is precious, whether it's written evidence or inscribed evidence in stone, whether it's archaeological discoveries or whatever. All evidence is precious. And so I am very reluctant to just brush aside something that's been found from antiquity. Yes, it has to be studied critically. There are myths and uh, unfactual ideas and beliefs from the past that are passed down uncritically. We don't accept everything from the past just because somebody long time ago said so. So there has to be a critical assessment of it. But, uh, but I think it's, a, it's an egregious, uh, uh, it's a sin against critical thinking, against the intellect, to just throw under the bus evidence from the past. Uh, I, just, I just find it inexcusable. You, you know, if you have a good reason for suspecting that something is, erroneous or mistaken, well, that's fine, but you have to have a reason for it. You have to have some counter evidence for it. It can't just be your own personal bias or preference. And so if you have first century texts, four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, independently, at least two independent streams there, if not three, referring to Nazareth, Jesus is from Nazareth, even though he's headquartered in Capernaum, by the way, he's known as Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Capernaum. Um, That argues in favor of the tradition right there. And then when you find uh, archaeological evidence that shows that, yeah, that that village did exist in the time of Jesus, then you find the name Nazareth inscribed on stone. Why are we even debating it? It seems to me that pretty well uh, wraps it up, and we should move on and discuss other things. Mm -hmm. Well, 
Dr. Evans, we're unfortunately getting close, getting to the point where we have to bring things to a close here. And I just want to tell everyone out here, please get your hands on this book. If I could recommend you one book on New Testament and archaeology, it would be this one. And right now, it's available on Amazon in only the hardcover format. Kindle isn't even out yet, apparently. But it's available for thirty two twenty six. That's a bit, but it is money that would be very well spent. The book is very enjoyable and very accessible, very easy to read. I went through it in just a few days. It, it's a wonderful read. Um, Dr. Evans, do you have a blog website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Uh, yes, I do. It's uh, www.craigaevans.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book is mentioned there. And, of course, it's real easy to find it. Uh, just Google uh, Jesus and the Remains of the Day. It'll take you to Amazon. It'll take you to Hendrickson, who is the publisher, mm-hmm. and probably to other places, too, where it's easy to easy to get the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Evans, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deep West Waters audience? Well, I do. And I, and I think I, I had an interesting conversation with some Mormons one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and many of your uh, audience would understand uh, some of the Mormon teachings uh, about the Book of Mormon and the gold tablets and all of that. And, uh, you know, I obviously am very skeptical. And why am I skeptical? Because there's no evidence, no archaeological evidence that suggests that the Book of Mormon story is true. Uh, there's no evidence of the existence of the tablets themselves. Where are they? You, you know, and where is the uh, Egyptian text that supposedly was translated in, into the English version of the Book of Mormon? Or Hebrew, as some are now saying, maybe it was Hebrew that Joseph Smith supposedly translated. So in my conversation with the Mormons, I said, look, guys, you know, you've got to go with the evidence. Mormons claim to be Christians of a sort. They claim to have respect, obviously, for Jesus and for the New Testament. I said, you've got to go with the evidence. If there isn't any evidence, you should be suspicious. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm willing to accept the Gospels because the manuscripts do exist. We have the Greek text. We have fragments of manuscripts that go all the way back to the second century. Mm-hmm. We have Old Testament manuscripts that go back to the second and third and fourth centuries BC. We have a little. We have on silver foil Numbers chapter six, the priestly blessings dating all the way back to the seventh century BC. That's what I call evidence. We have archaeological evidence that shows that the things actually happened and and the the biblical narratives are talking about the real thing. So that's what I said to our Mormon friends. Um, You don't have that for the Book of Mormon. So this applies across the board, Nick. And so think, ask for evidence. Mm -hmm. And where there's evidence, then then you can be assured that what you believe uh, is well-founded. Because faith is not anti-intellectual. Faith is not something that is backed up by no evidence. Faith and evidence go hand in hand. Thank you, Nick. Now, just to clarify also, the, the Book of Mormon, we question not just because of an argument from silence, but because we have zero positive evidence whatsoever as well, right? That's right. There, you know, it's quite a claim that's being made. And by the way, we're not talking about gold tablets from two or 3,000 years ago. We're talking about gold mm-hmm. tablets that this farm boy, Joseph Smith, says he saw 180 years ago in, in, in North America, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so where are they? And he supposedly translated the text. Well, where's the, where's the original text, mm-hmm. the Hebrew or the Egyptian or whatever it is? And so the story begins to sound very phony. And you don't have that. And I like, I like uh, referring to Mormonism that way because it's an interesting contrast. And so what do we have as biblical Christians? Well, we have the Gospels. And did they really exist in antiquity? Well, certainly. Do we have any evidence? Indeed, lots of it. Mm-hmm. Were they talking about real people, real places, real events? Indeed, they do. How do we know that? Well, because of other sources that aren't Christian, 
and also because of archaeology. So it, pre- it, it prevents an interesting point of contrast. Well, Dr. Evans, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to come on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Very good, Nick. Well, thank you. And I'd like to remind everyone that in two weeks, you're going to have Robert Stein coming on. We're going to talk about the Gospel of Mark. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>